Welcome again to King's Cross. It's good to be with you all this morning. We are picking up in the book of Galatians, which we've been working through slowly over the last few months. And this morning we're in Galatians 3, verse 27. So just one verse today. You can turn there with me in your Bibles. Galatians 3, 27. Paul writes, by the power of the Holy Spirit, for those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. This is the word of the Lord. I remember very well nine years ago next month, I participated in a ritual that dramatically changed everything about my life. I remember waking up in the morning, it was a cool, crisp fall morning, and the leaves were in full color in Cincinnati, and I had breakfast with some friends and got ready and drove over to a beautiful white church building. Uh, went in the back where I waited with my best friend and a pastor friend and mentor. And as the time passed, we walked out onto the church stage to see pews full of smiling and somewhat emotional people. Uh, and as the music continued to play and more people filled in, the faces got even more emotional as uh, the woman who would soon be my wife was walked down the aisle by her husband, or by her <laughs> father, <laughs> by her father. Uh, as the next 30 or 40 minutes passed, there were words said and repeated, there were candles lit, there were songs sung, uh, there, was, there were vows repeated, there was a giving of rings, a pronouncement of marriage, a kiss, lots of applause, and we came out of that ritual totally different. We walked in as two people and we came out as one. Now, our society in the West, we have an ever-diminishing number of rituals in, in many ways. A wedding is really the only one that I can point to and, and everybody gets like that. That is a ritual that we participate in uh, that celebrates the coming together of two people. Not so in, in more traditional cultures. Uh, every part of life is often marked by rituals and the church still has two very significant ones. And I understand that the word ritual and ritualistic is uh, a word that sometimes we have trouble getting over. It sounds dry, it sounds dead, but I use the illustration of a marriage to show you that these can be good things. And in the church, we, we have several different rituals. Singing every week is a ritual. Preaching God's word is a ritual. But there are two very significant ones. The Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist, depending on your church tradition, what you call it. Uh, and baptism. This morning's text is about baptism, and it's gonna, we're gonna think about it in two parts. Now, I'm just gonna tell you up front that the, the stark contrast between heady theological instruction moving to, hopefully, somewhat moving exhortation uh, may never be more stark than it is this morning. And I hope that that doesn't give you an excuse to check out of the first half of the sermon, uh, because as it works in Christianity, what we believe, our doctrine, the truth from God's word, informs the way that we ought to live. Uh, so if you're a note taker, like first half of the sermon is, is note taking time, uh, and then hopefully the second half may feel more engaging. But the first part is what baptism is, and the second part is what it does. Baptism is an ordinance or a sacrament of the church. 
Now, sacrament is a word that sounds maybe like something different than what it is. It just means sign. It comes from a Latin word which means sign. And, and anytime you have a sign, you have two things. You have both the sign and the thing signified. So in the case of baptism, what's the sign? It's a person being in water, being lowered down into the water, and coming up out of the water in the context of a church with words spoken like, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is the sign of baptism. But what does it signify? What is it pointing to? The Bible gives us a few different pictures. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just mention a few of them, but there are more. One is Titus 3.5 says that baptism is the washing of regeneration. Baptism points to the washing away of sin as if you were a dirty person in need of a shower. You're, you're, you're in your sin, and baptism is a picture of the washing away of that sin connected to regeneration, being born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 6 and Colossians 2, which are really parallel passages to this one in Galatians 3, say that we are baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ, right? So the going down into the water is a picture of actual death and burial with Christ, and the coming up out again is a picture of being raised to walk in newness of life. Here in Galatians 3, it's the same idea. It's putting on Christ. In baptism, you're being united to Christ, united to his death and united to his resurrection. Romans 6, 4, I think, is the most thorough in terms of these explanatory passages. It says, we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. We're buried in baptism into Christ's death. Now, we talk a lot here about substitution. We talk about the gospel, and rightly so. The substitution of Christ for us is the heart of the Christian message, the gospel, that Jesus lived the life that we failed to live in our place. He died the death that we deserve to die in our place. But it is also just as true to say It's not just that Jesus died for us, but it's that in him we died too. It's not just that he was raised for us, but that in him we were raised too, such that our old self, the sinful self, is dead, and now we are raised to walk in a new life, resurrection life, not yet fully, but truly nonetheless. And of course, none of this is by virtue of our own goodness, right? It's sheerly by God's grace through faith. That's what baptism signifies. It's the physical, tangible expression that corresponds with the spiritual reality that you have been united with Christ's death and new life, that you're clothed with him, and that you're publicly identified with him and his church. At the end of that wedding ritual that Lindsay and I went through, we gave each other rings. Uh, And I I learned from experience that day, now when I I, I give people a heads up on this during wedding rehearsals, because my hand was so puffy and sweaty that we tried to get the ring all the way down on my finger, and after a while of giggling, we just stopped and like just let it sit halfway at the top, because, you know, it's wedding day. uh, But that wedding ring is what? It's a sign that points to the thing signified. It's a a visible, tangible, physical expression of the invisible reality of our marriage and union with one another. Baptism functions in a similar way. But where we often get tripped up and where we often disagree even as Christians is what precisely is the relationship between the sign and the thing signified? What is the relationship between baptism and the salvation 
which it points to. So I think there's two ditches we can fall into, and I'm going to talk about both of them by way of illustrating what I think the right answer is. On the one hand, we can so identify baptism and salvation that we make baptism effective of salvation. In other words, we teach that baptism actually saves you, or we can teach that. That baptism actually infuses saving faith into the recipient, regardless of whether they have genuine faith coming to the baptism, regardless of whether they even chose to be there, right? It's the the formal teaching of the Catholic Church, for example, that when an infant is baptized, brought by their parents, that the baptism infuses saving faith into the child. Now, you all know my favorite theologian in church history is St. Augustine. I quote him probably every other week, but just to show you that I don't worship my heroes, I'm going to criticize him. Uh, He taught this. This is kind of a long quote, but I think it's a helpful illustration. He says, by this grace, baptized infants, too, are engrafted into Christ's body. Christ, in whom all are made alive, gives the most hidden grace of his spirit to believers, grace which he secretly infuses even into infants. Where does this derive except from an ancient and, I suppose, apostolic tradition? That means he says he thinks it's the teaching of the apostles, by which the churches of Christ hold inherently that without baptism and participation at the table of the Lord, it is impossible to attain either to the kingdom of God or to salvation and life eternal. So he says, without baptism and the Lord's Supper, it's impossible to be saved. If anyone wonders, he says, why children born of the baptized should themselves be baptized, let him attend briefly to this. This is the key line. He says, the sacrament of baptism is most assuredly the sacrament of regeneration. He says, when you receive the waters of baptism, you are regenerated. I love Augustine. I think we can disagree about this and still uh, appreciate much of what he wrote, but I think he's wrong. What does the Bible say? Acts 10, 44 through 47. So the gospel is going out. Disciples are being made. The church is growing. The gospel comes to Gentiles, to non-Jewish believers. And Peter goes and has this interaction with them. And Acts 10, 44 through 47 says that while Peter was still speaking to them, the Holy Spirit came down on those who heard the message. The gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. For they were speaking in tongues and declaring the greatness of God. We'll talk about that some other time. But Peter responded in response to these manifestations of the Spirit in their lives. It says, can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized who have received the Holy Spirit as we have? Did you catch the order there? They've already received the Holy Spirit. And so he says, what's keeping them from being baptized? He doesn't say, let's give them baptism so that they will receive the Holy Spirit. Likewise, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So you can't even believe that Jesus is Lord unless you've already received the Spirit. And what's the basis in Acts for baptizing somebody? The belief that Jesus is Lord. So the Spirit comes first, regeneration comes first, salvation comes first, and then baptism follows. Baptism does not produce the salvation. That's one ditch that we can fall into. Too, too closely identifying these two things that the Bible makes a distinction between. But on the other hand, and I suspect this may be closer to home, we can err by treating the sign and the thing signified, baptism and, and salvation, as if they had no relationship to each other whatsoever. And I want to give uh, two different ways that we can do this. First, we can do it by giving the sign of baptism to people who haven't yet been saved to people who aren't Christians. Uh, Now, there's this, I think, inherent logic in um, 
verses 26, which I didn't read, and verse 27. This is going to get really intricate, so hang with me. (laughs) Verse 26, Paul says, through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. Okay, you're sons of God, how? In Christ, through faith. So your faith is what puts you in Christ, Paul's saying. We are only in Christ through faith. Then verse 27, he says, those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. Okay, I think clothed with Christ is synonymous with being in Christ, right? That's fair. So in this verse, verse 27, Paul is saying, those of you who have been baptized are in Christ. Okay, did anybody have to take logic in middle school or high school? Or was this, Justin did, that's right. Okay, so all, all I remember from logic class is the word syllogism. And because it's a great word, how can you not remember that word? And so I was doing this this week and I was like, I think this is a syllogism, I think this applies. So follow me, point A, those who are in Christ are those who have faith. That's what verse 26 says. Verse 27, point B, those who are baptized are in Christ. Therefore, Paul is saying, those who are baptized have faith, right? It's being in Christ means you have faith, Being baptized means you're in Christ, therefore, if you're baptized, it means you have faith. And the only way that Paul can say this is either if baptism infuses faith, which we just saw is not correct, or if faith is a prerequisite for baptism. Uh, if, If you were a football player or a basketball player, and you had a favorite team, they wouldn't give you a, a uniform and a locker if you weren't on the team, right? They give you those external signs to show that you're part of this community, not to show that we hope one day you will be a part of this community. In the same way, we shouldn't divorce baptism from salvation by giving it to people uh, who haven't been saved. That's why at our church we don't baptize the infant children of believers. Uh, to be clear, uh, we have wonderful fellowship and friendship and partnership with churches who do. And in fact, if you came and looked at my bookshelves, you would probably see that the majority of people on them do practice infant baptism. So this is not the kind of issue that we need to, to be hateful about or divide over. Uh, but functionally speaking, we do have to make a decision. And I don't think that we should divide the two. But there's another way that we can divide the two, and this may be closest to home. We can do it by withholding baptism from people who really have experienced salvation. So I grew up in a church that was a kind of a typical Southern Baptist church. And the, uh, you know, sort of caricature of like, VBS being so emotionally manipulative that by the end of it, there's just like a water slide going into a big pool and like any kid who wants to get baptized just goes down the water slide, right? It wasn't, it wasn't that, but it was maybe like a step and a half shy of it such that every year you have kids getting rebaptized, rebaptized, rebaptized because what if it wasn't, you know, what if it wasn't legit the first time? I need to cover my bases and get baptized again. And in response to that, I think is a, you know, started as a healthy response, some churches have so overreacted that they've begun to impose these long and laborious waiting periods between a genuine profession of faith and baptism. Like we have to wait five years to figure out if you're really a Christian after you profess faith. And, And I don't think that's helpful. 
I think to, or, you know, just to go even further, we can so overreact to the first ditch, to baptismal regeneration, to the idea that baptism saves you, that we just treat it like, hey, it's just water. There's nothing special going on there, you know, so take it or leave it. Get baptized when you want to, no big deal. But to not give baptism to those who have been genuinely born again is, one, it's preventing obedience to Jesus who tells us to be baptized as his followers, but two, it's robbing people of a real means of grace. We can get into this later. The baptism doesn't save you, but it's not just water. It's not just going down into a bathtub. There's something real that happens, and to rob people of that by just not caring is not what we're called to do. So we should neither overly identify baptism and salvation, nor should we divorce what the Bible keeps together. Think of it this way. If we were to go see a play together, uh, there would be multiple acts in the play. There might be an intermission. There's several characters. There's various lines. There's, you know, just sort of the narrative flow of the play. There's the venue that we're seeing it in. All of these are different parts of the performance, but it's all one play. It's all one performance, right? And similarly, in your salvation is included predestination, calling, regeneration, justification, adoption, It's based on the eternal will of the Father. It's through the life and death of the Son. It involves the filling of the Holy Spirit. And it involves baptism. And baptism is not the grounds of your salvation. It's not what saves you, but it's like the capstone of your salvation. It's the the final capstone, the sign and the seal that you have been brought into Christ and into his people. It's more than merely your public profession of faith. It's a physical event that intimately and intrinsically connects you to this spiritual reality that you have been brought into Christ and into his body. And based on all that, it has massive implications for your life. Okay, exhale, (coughs) transition time. Uh, There are incredibly practical implications of what baptism is. We could list several, but I'm just gonna give you two. The first is that baptism gives you a totally new identity. Clothed with Christ is identity language. You're covered by him. You're united with him. He becomes your identity. And I recognize that in our day and age, increasingly, that may actually sound like bad news. It might sound like a loss of freedom, of autonomy, of authority, because today we are told that the authority and the agency to create your own identity is just about the most important thing that you can have. If I don't have the agency and authority to determine myself who I am, then what am I? So how is it good news to be told that baptism gives you a new identity, an identity that comes from the outside? I'll give you three reasons. First is because created identities, and that's the alternative, right? Either you receive your identity or you create your identity. Created identities are incredibly fickle because where do we, what's the location? What's the source of our created identities? It's our desires, right? We look inside of ourselves and whatever we find there, our affections, our desires, the things we love, that's what we say, that's who I am. And so I'm going to express that to people out there. It's, I always go back to this line from the Goo Goo Dolls song, Slide, that says, what you feel is what you are and what you are is beautiful. That's the best, they didn't know they were being uh, theologians, but that's the best picture of our sort of modern approach to identity. What you feel is what you are and whatever it is, it's beautiful. But 
The problem with that is at least twofold. One, your desires change. If, you're, if your identity is determined by your desires, then your identity is going to be changing all the time, every week, every day. And not only that, but whether we want to admit it or not, we're all expressing ourselves for the approval of someone or some group, right? We're never, nobody is actually just expressing themselves without regard to what other people think. We're all expressing the parts of ourselves that we think that person or that group will approve. And the problem is the opinions of those people are just as fickle as our own desires. And so we have to be these chameleons all the time trying to figure out what part of myself do I want to make my identity. I, I think of this, I, I always think of myself in high school when I think of this because I did not know who I was. And I <clears throat> ran in kind of some different circles and there was part of my identity that was like, I was a competitive golfer, so I was this preppy, privileged country club kid on, on, you know, on some days. But then I also had this anti-authoritarian, like listen to a lot of punk rock thing, uh, and then I also had Appalachian roots, so sometimes I wanted to listen to like old country music, and so it wasn't uncommon uh, to see me like fishing for smallmouth bass on the pond by the ninth green after finishing a round of golf with a big dip in listening to Blink-182. Like, <laughs> I had no idea who I was. And the worst part of that was that it changed depending on who I was with on any given day. Isn't that exhausting? Isn't it exhausting to have to constantly try to figure out who am I and what version of me is going to be accepted by this group? Baptism gives you an identity that is not fickle. It's stable and sturdy and solid. You become one with Jesus Christ, and the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. It doesn't matter how you feel today. It doesn't matter how well you performed at work or at school or in your marriage this week. It doesn't matter if your friends or family or boss have particular interest and appreciation for you today, your identity is fixed because you are in Christ and he cannot change. The second reason this is better than a created identity is because created identities are not only fickle, they're fragile. If your identity isn't merely in your desires, what's it in? Probably one of three things, your relationships or your job or your possessions, right? So I am a dad or a husband or a mom or a friend or I am my job, I'm a musician, I'm an accountant, I'm uh, a doctor, I'm an artist, I'm a pastor, I'm my bank account, my car, my house, the vacations I went on this year, right? These are all things that we find our identity in. What are the things for you? Just ask yourself the question. What are the things that I can't imagine living my life without? What are the things that I can't imagine living my life without? What are the things that I'm constantly living my life with reference to. Like when I walk into the room, people relate to this aspect of me. Whether that's, you know, I'll, I'll be gender stereotypical for a second. It's dangerous to do that. Uh, but often, you know, sometimes at least these stereotypes are there for a reason. What, what often happens is if people get married and have kids, you look at people later in life and where do people find their identities? Normally dad finds his identity in his work and mom finds her identity in being a mom, right? It's not true for everybody, but it is, it is a real possibility and a real danger. And there are several other things, right? Your, your, your friendships, your job, whatever. What is that for you? Whatever's coming to mind right now, that is dangerously close to being your identity. And do you know what can happen when your identity is in those things? You can lose them 
in the blink of an eye. You can lose your identity in the blink of an eye. Your kids grow up and one day they say, I hate you and I don't want a relationship with you anymore. Or your spouse comes home and says, there's somebody else. I'm leaving. Or you get laid off from a job that you were really good at. Or the stock market crashes and all of a sudden your retirement savings are out the window. Your baptism gives you an identity that isn't fragile, it's indestructible. Whatever else your identity is in is eventually going to let you down or be taken away from you or it's going to crush you or you're going to crush it, but not Jesus. He is the only thing that can bear the weight of your identity. He is indestructible and when you put him on in baptism, you become indestructible too. Third thing, Created identities are ultimately unfulfilling. I have to redeem Augustine uh, because he was right when he prayed in the confessions, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. We were created for God and therefore our hearts will continue restlessly searching until they rest in him. The pressure to create your own identity is crushing, it's exhausting, it's relentless, and when you have to do that, you're never able to just rest. And your baptism says, you are firmly in the one for whom your heart was made. You are firmly fixed in the one in whom you can find true rest. Baptism not only gives you a new identity, it also gives you a new community. I'm just gonna hit on this for a minute because we'll talk about it more next week, but verse 28, let your eyes go down there. When you are united to Christ, do you know who else you're united to? Everybody else who is also united to Christ. So Paul can write, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. He says elsewhere in Ephesians, there is one Father, one Lord, one Spirit, and one baptism. All of us have passed through the same waters. We've all put on Christ. Our identities are in him, which means we all share an identity, which means when we relate to one another, we do so through Christ. Now, again, in our world, in our culture, we've been wrestling with decades now for, with, with the question of how do we not only live together without killing each other, but how do we celebrate our diversity in a multicultural context? And there's a really compelling vision here that almost sounds utopian, right? Jews and Greeks, which means that people can overcome racial differences and still have unity. Uh, slave and free, people can overcome class differences and have unity. Male and female, right? We can overcome gender differences and have unity. Neither race nor class nor gender can put up any dividing walls in the church, but how is it possible? How, based on what? Like how, how is Paul saying we can get that? Only if race and class and gender and other identity factors take a back seat to our ultimate identity, which is in Christ. Now we have to be really careful, and we'll get into this more next week. That's not to say that those parts of you are abolished or disappear when you become a Christian. Paul's not advocating either for some sort of colorblindness or for like gender fluidity. He's saying these things take a back seat to your ultimate identity. When I see you, I still see those things, but I see them through the lens of Christ who covers you. Identity politics is a, a phrase that's become really popular in the last decade or so. And it's this idea, right, that in, in our day, our community is formed, 
or first our identity is formed on the basis of our, the sort of complex matrix of things about ourselves. And then our community is formed when we group up with other people who share the same identity and advocate our cause. And you might think I'm going to criticize that, but Christianity in some sense fundamentally is actually very similar to that. We, we do uh, have an identity. Our identity is in Christ. Our community is formed on the basis of our identity. But what, is, what, what does that mean? What's it formed on? It's not formed on the basis of race or class or income or politics, where you live, what language you speak. All those things are secondary. We share an identity with people who are vastly different from us on all those things because our identity group is other people who are in Christ. And then what does it mean to advocate our cause? It doesn't mean to form a political group that works for our, our well-being over and against other people. It means to worship God, to preach the gospel, to serve one another, to love, Jesus says, even to love our enemies and to pray for one another. Christian baptism gives you an identity that is stable and indestructible and fulfilling. It gives you a community that's not based on race or class or politics or performance, but on a shared identity in Christ that works itself out in love. Do you want that? Does that sound compelling to you? Does that sound like rest in a really, really exhausting world? If so, put on Christ. If you're not a Christian, become a Christian. Reach out to him, have faith in him, believe in him, put him on by faith. And Christian, two things. First, if you haven't been baptized, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, but you just, you've never done that, you've never been baptized, be baptized. Make it official. Like finish the, you know, the, the go through the ritual, the ceremony that, that publicly announces this person has received the washing of regeneration. This person has died with Christ and been buried with him and has been risen to new life. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing that cements your relationship to Christ and to his church. So first, and, and if that's you, by the way, please talk to us. If you wanna talk about that, please grab me and let's talk about that. Second, Christian, Remember your baptism. That's, that's actually not a common phrase in Baptist life, maybe ironically. Other church traditions say this, remember your baptism. I think the problem is probably because we've made baptism so subjective that it's like, well, remembering my baptism just makes me wonder if I really meant it enough and maybe I need to go and do it again. Remember your baptism. It is more than your public profession of faith. It was the promise of God, the giving by God of a new identity and a new community and a promise that the thing signified by the sign has really happened. That, that God, through faith, has really washed you and regenerated you. You have been born again. Your identity is now in Christ. If you're a Christian and you're confused about who you are, you're confused about your identity, remember your baptism. If you have lost something, a relationship, a job, money, something that feels like it's almost a part of your identity, remember your baptism. If you're feeling disappointed and disillusioned by trying to find something stable and sturdy to hold on to in this world, remember your baptism. If you're lonely and isolated, if your community is just your political tribe, if you feel like you have to perform in order to belong, to be good enough to be accepted either here or anywhere else, remember 
your baptism. You were buried with Christ. You were raised to walk in newness of life, and you do that together with everybody else who has gone through the same waters.